content warning, this podcast contains mentions of depression and sexism. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Queer Sounds, colon, the COVID sessions. My name is Hannah, pronouns they, them. Stories from beyond my studio comfort. Uh, my guest today is a, uh, I want to say a true Tumblr viral sensation, but we'll get into that later. Um, before we get into all of that, I'd like to draw your attention to my all-new, all-fresh Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash queersounds, where you can get stickers, uh, a personalized thank you message if you, um, you know, become a patron. Uh, or maybe even, if that's what you might be interested in, you can get music played on a future episode. You can decide what me and a personal guest will react to in an upcoming installment of Queer Sounds. Um, yeah, that's patreon.com slash queer sounds. If you're not that much of a subscription type of person, you just want to do a single donation, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash queer sounds is also still available. Um, but yeah, with that out of the way, um, I'd like to introduce to you my guest for today, um, from Sydney, Australia, calling in, Ganit, welcome. Hi. Um, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit, your name, pronouns, um, how would you describe yourself, what do you do? Um, yeah, my name is Ganit Kaur, I, she, her, pronouns, they, them is also fine. Um, uh, you mentioned Tumblr viral sensation, which I find almost a little embarrassing, because yeah, I had that blog, um, Bifax, which got sort of unexpectedly popular on Tumblr. Um, and that was just a blog I was where I was writing funny satirical facts about bisexuality. But yeah, besides that, I do comedy as a hobby. We'll um, touch upon all of the comedy experiences, whether that's digitally or IRL. Um, but before that, I wanted to highlight a small little fact because we actually shared... Um, we went to uni in the same place and we weren't aware of it. Um, like I was following your blog at the time already. Obviously you weren't aware of me because queer sense wasn't a thing yet. And why should you be aware of my existence as a person? But I just thought it was funny that, you know, those, those roads crossed before. Um, so how do you look back at your time studying in Rotterdam? I really loved it. It was just, yeah really formative for me because it was the first time traveling abroad by myself and I think I was very young at the time I was 19 so it was just a lot of first that I was taking off really quickly um yeah and it, it had always been a dream to visit Europe so I was really lucky that I got to do that out of all of Europe why Rotterdam specifically uh I wanted to live in the Netherlands I think in particular I thought it was very central I wanted to travel around a lot as much as I could and so um, geographically, it made sense. But also, I just liked the idea of the Netherlands. It seemed like things were happening there. Rotterdam in particular. Um, from my perspective, it doesn't have too big of a music scene, but that just might, that might just come from my white rock-oriented perspective. Um, did you go to any shows there? Not really, no. I think, yeah, I don't know much about the music scene there. All of the clubs and stuff seem to have a lot of techno i think techno was pretty big there um what did you study there in the first place uh, i was doing a psych um, i was doing a psychology degree here but uh overseas i just did my elective units did a i think i took up a lot of like media and journalism units what's what were your experiences there was was it a large difference with uh compared to studying in sydney i think it was pretty similar overall um i'm trying to think if there was any major differences I, liked, I quite liked the campus. That was quite nice. And the little Starbucks and stuff. I don't think there was uh, that big a difference in terms of how I studied. I think the biggest difference would have been like the fact that I could catch the tram to uni, uh, which was, yeah, I don't have that here. We don't have that here really or anything comparable or like bicycling. Um, I think it's about time we get into uh, the first track of the day. Um space and time but wolf alice um i'm just gonna play the entire thing see where it goes, see where it goes.
All right, Wolf Alice, Space and Time, uh, off the 2017 album uh, Visions of a Life. One of my personal favorites of that year, actually. Um, so, Gunny, you mentioned before that you were particularly um, drawn to the lyrics of this song, and uh, this lyrics in particular being about general anxiety, uh, lines like, I'm set to self-destruct. That's heavy stuff. Yeah, um... I think I've had mental health. I've had mental health issues on and off for pretty much ever, like since I was a teenager. But this song, at that point in my life, uh, a few years ago, where it talks about, um, she uses the word body a lot. I think it felt for me like uh, I was having dissociative episodes and stuff at the time, so it felt like I couldn't trust my senses sometimes. So it really resonated in that way. Like it wasn't just. It felt like it wasn't just a cognitive thing anymore. But yeah, then why was it uh, this this particular track? Because they used the word body itself a lot, so it went beyond a mental health thing. Am I am I summarizing yeah. that, that correctly? Yeah, there are like particular lyrics that stuck out to me. Like she says, "I'm feeling, I feel I'm losing control of my body, control of my moods and my decisions." And I think, yeah, at that point in my life, it felt like a little bit like I was out of control. Right. Usually in this category, people pick like something they're particularly nostalgic for, um, tracks with a happy memory. Why did you decide to do the exact opposite of that? Uh, I, I guess it wasn't really a conscious decision. I feel like um, instead of associating songs with specific experiences, I generally associate them with time periods. I think because I have a habit of listening to things on repeat and I'll do that for weeks or months sometimes specific songs and specific types of songs and specific like if I'm going through a breakup it's all going to be moody sad stuff for a month or two uh, so um, I think it's a bit harder to think of like there, well, there have definitely been positive songs that I've had on loop but I couldn't really tell you why I guess or if they're linked to specific memories whereas this was just like oh there was a rough patch and I remember I had this song on repeat for a while and I think even though it is a sad song, what I did really love about it and what resonates with me with it is that it was quite upbeat, like, I guess, in terms of pace. It's energetic. It's, I think, something that, like, I could listen to and then go out for, like, a walk or a run. Yeah, it gets you riled up a little bit and then... Yeah, yeah. Re-energizes. can also imagine that, you know, it sounds quite aggressive, too. Was that something you, you felt as well? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, like, yeah, particularly when it's stuff relating to depression, often it's uh, with this sort of song. I feel like what I like is that it sort of acknowledges that you're not in a good place, but it also kind of can amp you up. But it also, would it amp you up in a positive or in a negative sense? I think for me it was positive. I didn't feel it as aggression, really. I feel like it was more just high energy. You'd say that it would touch upon using music as a coping mechanism. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So... Was Wolf Alice in particular then something that would help you cope with depression and negative negative thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I think music in general. Um, I, I hadn't really thought about it critically, I guess, until you've asked. But yeah, often I'll pick song specific specific moods. So if I'm feeling sad, sad songs. But um, I particularly love uh, um, songs that kind of have the sad lyrics but are high high energetic and like high energy and um, ones that you could dance to or sing along to aggressively because often that's what I feel like I need is to be able to like if I'm in the middle of a depressive episode to be able to sort of create movement within myself I've worded that very strangely but if we're going to backtrack this a little bit do you remember anything before Wolf Alice that would help you cope with negative episodes because 2017 that's a fairly recent track yeah uh i'm not sure about before i remember there was pasta by angie mcmahon which i think sort of evokes a similar feeling for me that might be newer though but uh it's the same sort of thing of like it's not as it doesn't have as as much a rock feel it's more pop indie but that same sort of mellow feeling and then later a uh, super high energy bit towards the end how did you end up with Wolf Alice in the first place? Because I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that Wolf Alice 2017 wasn't actually one of the first bands that you listened to. There's an entire history of music before that. This is not the best answer, but I think I probably just found her on the radio. I feel like I listen to a lot of radio while I drive and then 
occasionally I'll find it, like I'll hear a song and it will resonate and I have to download it and listen to it on to repeat for a bit. Do you remember like one of the first artists that you listened to, like from a childhood perspective? My parents weren't super into music, but I remember mum played Casey Chambers when I was really young. It's a name that actually doesn't ring a bell. What's what kind of music is that? Uh, like she was Australian. Um, I'm trying to remember, but it's all a bit blank. Um, yeah, like I don't know. Uh, it was it was poppy. Right. It probably is not too dissimilar to some of the music I listen to today, but nineties um, poppy slightly. So that there's a specific pop, maybe some rock leaning nineties stuff that kind of set the set the foundation for what your own music taste ended up being. Yeah, I think um, being young as well, I remember Delta Goodrum was also Australian. Pop feels like the wrong word for stuff that can be a bit mellow at times, but I'm tr- I don't have the vocabulary, which is a shame. Yeah, and with that, pop is also like extremely broad with a purpose, right? So it can be yeah, either yeah. both very energetic or very mellow. I'm just kind of trying to think about other artists that would fall in the same category, but for the life of me, I can't get any further than Shania Twain because that's just kind of where my mind's stuck at right now. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Um, I'm trying to think of earlier ones as well. Like... Yeah, those are probably the earliest would be Delta Goodrum um, and Casey Chambers. And then after that, I think I got into like, there was a bit of Blink-182 Blink as well that my mom really liked. She quite liked Blink-182. And after that would have been exploring other sorts of music and stuff in high school and listening to lots of random things. There was a bit of Lily Allen, Arctic Monkeys. The typical 2005 great wave of indie the with all of those bands yeah it kind of makes sense i feel like my my personal music taste is very similar to yours in the sense that it also you know around 2005 high school you started looking into into more rock slash indie bands and end up as of 2017 with um wolf alice and alex lee which we're later going to get into Backtracking to the lyrics for a little bit, um, someone who has English as their first language, have you always just been a lyric person? Because, you know, I just kind of went for the melody and the general feel that a song would evoke. I think I need both. Uh, I think you go for a melody or I go for melody first. And then after that, if it's something that I'm going to want to listen to obsessively, because I do go through periods where I yeah, pick specific songs, listen to them for weeks, almost on repeat exclusively, or I'll have three or four songs that I have on repeat for a few weeks. And then like periodically I'll listen to newer stuff or switch it up or whatever. But if it's a song that I get obsessed with, then it's generally it resonates lyrically. It needs to. With a song like uh, Space and Time, to, to stick to the example we've listened to, like is the main contrast between lyrics and melodies something that also just kind of sticks around with you something yeah yeah i think i really love and appreciate that so it's never like songs that are um like in the everybody hurts type of sense sad lyrics sad melody that are just blending in like a whole no i can go for that too like um i quite like julia jacqueline and at points she can be quite heavy and lyrically and melodically uh meg mac is another one who i really love who um, some some of her songs are more high, high energy and upbeat than others, but also like definitely has the capacity to be low energy and sad. I think for me, yeah, it's a mood thing. Um, with that, do you have like a particular song now that you put on when you're when you're sad? Um, don't know how to stop loving you, Julia Jacqueline. I think is the one at the moment. And a happy song. Oh, don't know how to keep loving you. Sorry. Oh, I'm not sure about happy song. Maybe the most recent one might have been Everything Now by the by Arcade Fire. Oh, all right. Um, I don't know if that's... I don't think it's lyrically happy, but it's <laughs> energetic. I mean, Everything Now is kind of like an anti-capitalist lyrically. So with that, I think they're kind of angry lyrics, maybe? Cynical would be the word for it? Yeah, I think that was one of the ones where I hadn't really looked into it too much. Um, although I've obviously yeah, noticed that some of them... They talk about like every inch of skin has a scar and stuff and obviously that's quite like loaded. But it's one of the ones where I think the melody for me I find so upbeat that it overwrites that. I don't know. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it was like a true festival anthem when it came out. Like everyone's just vibing to it. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't feel sad listening to it ever. Yeah, I don't think anyone does. Is it a coincidence that all of these songs are released in 2017? Because I guess so. Everything now is as well. Maybe <laughs> three years behind on everything. <laughs> all right. Speaking of songs, 2017. Uh, let's get into the second track of the day. Uh, Backpack by Alex Leigh. You think you're gonna die at the age of 33 And just say you always end things before a year in You make double vision, bad decisions But that's okay with me You text me at the wheel, which you really shouldn't do And you know I'll tell you off, even though I do it too Your disorganized perfectionism is so okay with me I know life's too short to settle down And you move faster than the world spins round It's hard for me to put my arms around you Queer Artist Spotlight of this episode, Alex Leahy, uh, the track Backpack from the fantastic album I Love You Like a Brother. Um, why did you pick this this artist in particular? It's one of the few artists where I can like listen to an album and love pretty much every song on that album. Uh, and yeah, I think none of... I don't feel like the songs are overtly queer, but I remember um, I was listening to one of the songs I haven't been taking care of myself. I was listening to, that, listening to that on repeat for a little bit. And I came across the music video and she has little like placards that she holds with like some of the lyrics on them. And at one point uh, she's got like the pronoun her referring to a partner in the song and like the in the scheme of the music video and narrative of the music video. And I was like, oh, like it just made me really happy knowing that she was queer, even though it wasn't overtly mentioned i guess yeah because that's um i do think that she kind of tries to compensate for that though because in the song she isn't explicitly queer on twitter however like she goes oh. out of her way to make sure that, uh, that everyone knows everyone knows yeah it's like especially um now with self so that's um she's just kind of keeping a log like day 52 still gay <laughs> oh gosh i gotta follow her on twitter what am i doing Right, yeah, you, you should. You're missing out on some great stuff. It's funny that you mentioned the song I Haven't Been Taking Care of Myself um, because I've actually got that on on my bedroom wall. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, I think I saw, I saw a live um, like half a year after I Love You Like a Brother came out and she had that on, on a tote bag. Like that, that particular line, she's got that hanging on my wall. I've also got a personal connection with Alex Leahy, which kind of ties back into um, the subject that we talked about earlier, because when I was having some mental health issues uh, in the summer of 2019, in particular, the track Don't Be So Hard On Yourself is what I had on repeat. Oh, yeah, that's a lovely one. But back to your personal experiences, I actually thought that you... um, picked Alex Leahy because she would have been so explicitly gay on Twitter because I can see some parallels there. Oh, well, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I didn't, I, I haven't been following her on Twitter. I've neglected to do that. I'll rectify this. Um, but no, I think I just like listened to, I just loved her music. And then like, I feel like discovering that she was queer was just kind of like the icing on the cake. It was, it was like, oh, this is amazing. I love this artist so much. And now I have more in common with them. I love that. Right. Yeah. And then why this track in particular? 
I almost went uh, with I haven't been taking care of myself, but I felt like I couldn't pick two depressing songs in a row. Like that was just, um, but yeah, Backpack, I feel like is quite underrated. I think it's quite like a beautiful song. And um, I think just as someone who occasionally dates men and knows how like emotionally um, distant they can be, I really resonate with it a lot. Uh, so I really, yeah, I really love this song. Right. Because um, that again would be because of the lyrics then yes right yes. makes sense because uh, yeah yeah for for those unaware like the backpack obviously isn't just i mean practically it could be an actual backpack but it's also about you know using your backpack as a buffer to keep people at a distance a symbolic backpack symbolic backpack i feel like there is something about there that also ties into emotional luggage oh yeah baggage yeah of course I don't know, but you mentioned as someone uh, who expl- who occasionally dates men and about them being emotionally distant, whereas that obviously wouldn't been the case for Alex Lay. I don't know if if she dates men or not, but I don't think she does. I don't think she does either. Yeah, I definitely have a habit of like listening to songs and then kind of reframing them in my head to fit me a little bit sometimes. Uh, I think it's just like how you connect to stuff, I guess. Um, but I guess the experience of of being with someone who is putting up a buffer or being emotionally distant is probably universal to an extent amongst people who date people. And also like with music, like the power of that is obviously, you know, being able to uh, to recognize yourself in the lyrics because they're so open for interpretation. Definitely, yeah. How about your own queer experience? That's a very broad uh, question. Like, um, how do you experience your, your bias? How did it manifest itself in your daily life? I think at this point, I'm really comfortable with it. I wasn't a few years ago, and I think that's probably where the blog came from, where like Vibex just came, became a way to sort of, um, if someone said something annoying to me, I could turn it into a joke and put it online, and it would be really validating. And suddenly it was like this big community of people who felt the same way that I did and sort of appreciated my sense of humor and I could like make people laugh and validate them too so it was really good uh, but now I'm I think a lot more comfortable with my sexuality and now I think my queerness manifests itself in more of like a deconstruction of I think stereotypical gender roles so I feel and I don't know if this is controversial I feel like even when I'm dating men the relationships still feel quite queer to me because I'm not putting myself in the gender role of like I feel like there are things that straight people inherently subscribe to of like a woman's role is this and a man's role is that and I think the moment you like a queer you sort of opt out a little bit or you think to yourself well if I'm like this with a girl but if I'm allowed to take a more dominant role in dating a girl or whatever why why doesn't it translate to all your relationships it kind of deconstructs everything uh like a standard cishat relationship would be and yeah i feel like more things are up for negotiation like i feel like with within like like heteronormativity and stuff uh, there are these like designated roles and things that people do and generally like the man's the head of the house i know this is very like uh antiquated but like those ideas sort of still kind of persist a bit in subtle ways or like the guy should pay or you know do all the asking out and stuff and I feel like I just don't have time for any of that to like limit myself in those sort of ways. And often I think a lot of them, like, I feel like a lot of dudes find the way I approach dating intimidating by design. I don't mind that uh, if they're not comfortable with it. So I often end up dating like queer men as well, off like, act, like just out of happenstance. It's not that I'm searching for them, but it'll be like, I'll go on a few dates with a guy and then he'll mention that he's attracted to men. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, but with that being said, I would also definitely recommend any cishet person to also reconsider the, the heteronormative relationship structures. Definitely, definitely. Like this goes beyond a queer experience, and I think that that's very, very powerful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I find it quite liberating as well, because like, I feel like um, if I'm allowed to, say, ask a girl out on a date, I should be allowed to ask a boy out on a date, or whatever it is. And I think being able to be more upfront or assertive or just like say what I want is just like really amazing and lovely. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, 
it allows for situations in which um, open communication is actually encouraged instead of kind of pushed into a corner, shoved under the rug. Yeah. Why did you, how did you um, settle on describing yourself as bisexual instead of any of the other terms that are out there? I quite like, uh, well, I guess pan fits me too. I don't feel like uh, the, like uh, my attraction is limited by gender. I just like bisexual because I think there's a, a historical thing to the label. There's a historical significance. And I quite like that I could just say it and people know what it is. Even though, um, obviously, like there are a lot of misconceptions around bisexuality and all of that, and I do will occasionally get like the ignorant comment or whatever. I f- would hate. I feel like I would hate to say that I'm pan and then have to explain the term all the time. You briefly mentioned uh, your pronouns. Would uh, you're also okay with they them? Is there some kind of non-binary non-binary gender thing going on there as well, or is that just as a general? don't really care uh mostly as a general don't really care i think i've like thought critically a lot about my gender and i feel like mostly women like i feel but i do have a genuine i don't know if this is normal you can tell me um but i do have a level of genuine indifference where yeah occasionally i don't really like i've gone through butch phases where i've dressed a bit more masculine and i've had like a pixie cut and um, if someone's not really paying attention, they'll misgender me. And, and I haven't really minded. Like, it wasn't something I wanted either, but it was just a level of indifference. So I don't know if that means anything, but yeah, I don't mind they, they them, or she, her. Yeah, I think you're definitely not alone in that experience, but I'm not the one to judge because I've got a whole tin of worms when it comes about gender and how I'm actually actively repulsed by it. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. I think, like... I think there's a world where I would call myself non-binary, but it also feels wrong to me to do that now, only because I feel like I'm just so comfortable with femininity right now that I would be taking it away from people who um, actually have like gender dysphoria, whereas I'm just kind of like, there's a level of ambivalence is what I have, or like indifference. I do want to get into the bifacts thing a little bit more because... Um... You mentioned that's just kind of a blog that became popular by accident. It started out as a coping mechanism a little bit. What role did Tumblr at large play in, in your own identity? I think uh, it was it gave me a sense of community. Like when I was like, I was pretty late to coming out. I went to an all-girls high school and that should have been a good thing as a queer woman. Uh, but I don't think it was because it just... Like, I think there was this view that if you were queer at an all-girls high school, then you were, like, predatory or, like, people had to watch out for you in the change rooms or something. It, was, it wasn't going to go down well. So um, I pretty much repressed it for most of high school. I had, it like, the occasional crash here and there, but then because uh, straight women are strange, uh, there was, like, phrases like girl crush around. And I kind of was like, oh, this is just, like, one of those girl crushes that you guys seem to have on Kira Knightley or Natalie Portman or whoever. Like, I'm the same as you guys. Um, but then I think at some point it clicked to me that when, like, straight girls were talking about having girl crushes, they meant, oh, if I was drunk at a party, I would give them a peck on the lips, whereas I was had other things in mind. Like, I was like, oh, I could I could date her. And they were like, that's not covered in, under this. Um, More an active so, sense of romantic attraction instead of physical. Yeah, or... Uh, there was that, but also, like, I think a more intense physical attraction rather than just, like, oh, I could kiss so-and-so. I was like, oh, just kiss? Is that where we're leaving it? But, like, it was just navigating all of these strange things, like, rules where, I, like, I kind of, for a long time, I really wanted to be straight and I really wanted to, like, fit within that narrative. So I was like, oh, like, every all of my experiences fit within yours, but they just didn't. And then I think going to, like, uni and then actually coming out and stuff, um... Like I grew, I live in Western Sydney, which is a little less accepting than some other parts of Sydney. Um, we had like the vote, the plebiscite on gay marriage, and uh, a lot of Western Sydney voted no on that. Over overall, the country voted yes, but there there were certain suburbs there that were like not happy about it. So I yeah, kind of was in a bit of a homophobic area. So even though I had a pretty good support network in terms of immediate friends and everyone was really lovely and amazing, it was very much like, 
a lot of casual homophobia or biphobia. And so I think um, an online community was really amazing and powerful in that way of just like feeling more connected to people. I think like, because it was, I don't think I had a lot of queer friends until like the last two or three years. I didn't, when I was like in high school or shortly after leaving uni, there was one or two friends here and there, but yeah, it can be isolating. So it was really nice just to have the sense that like the feelings I had were kind of universal at the se- that because a lot of the bifax jokes are about someone will have said something to me and I will be mad about it and then I'll make a joke about it. I bet the sense of community also blew up because yeah. your, your your blog became so big. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the blog was a means of like yeah, connecting to a sense of community. I think the first post of your blog that I came across was also uh, music related, like the the Arctic Monkeys one. Ah, yeah, I remember that. Vaguely, I don't remember it word for word, but yeah. Yeah, something about how bisexuals can hear into the future. For they can't see into the future, but they can hear into the future. For example, the new Arctic Monkeys po- uh, the new Arctic Monkeys album is really good. Yeah, pretty decent. Yeah, and then Hotel Tranquility Base and Casino came out, and I was so disappointed. Like, how could she be wrong about this? <laughs> Yeah, I think, like, I wrote that so many years ago that there was a period where, like, for a few years, everyone, like, would occasionally get reblogs that were like, oh, there's never going to be a new album. Stop, like, sharing this. Why are you giving us false hope? And then it came out, and then everyone's really, like, there's real mixed reviews about Hotility Tranquil. I couldn't really get into it either. I didn't mind it, but I didn't love it. Let's see where to go from here. Um Let's just put the next track on and, um, all right. So third track, best life experience backseat by Ali Barter. to the future for two, two years um I've been stuck in 2017 but here we are 2019 at least that's when this track was released for uh, off the album hello i'm doing my best i'm glad that i got the chance to correct that because uh, before the track started playing just now i had in my notes hell i'm doing my best but this was the last tr- uh, artist you saw live before um all of the quarantining happened which made this show so much more special. But please tell it in your own words. Uh, yeah, I think it was um, every year we have Hottest 100 Day in Australia, which is just like all of the songs from that year globally. People um, vote. There's a radio station that does it and then pubs all around Australia will like play the songs all day. Um, and it's kind of this thing where we're all anticipating and guessing what number one will be and it's kind of like an exciting music thing that happens annually so um i don't go out to see live music as much as i should or want to uh, which is a shame but yeah around late january uh it was hottest 100 days so i went out and um i saw that ali Bada was performing at like a little local pub not too far from me and um it was just really great being there because 
like often like when it's music related stuff we'll try and like it's a months in advance kind of thing with an artist I really love and I'll try and organize friends to go with me and all of that but this was very like spontaneous and it was just an event that was local to me at a pub that I quite like there was just something really homey and nice about it even though it was also kind of like packed and the floors were sticky and all of that it was just that like kind of slightly grotty slightly amazing atmosphere but the stickiness and being packed in a room with a whole bunch of people who were enjoying a sense of live music euphoria that's like one of the best experiences about the concert right yeah that's generally what at least to me that's what appealing yeah and I, yeah, I quite like that this was like a little local gig too. Like I saw, I haven't seen that much um, music live, which is a shame, but I saw Arctic Monkeys, which I really loved. I think in like 2018, 2017, around that time. I don't remember the exact year, which is bad of me. But um, I was like, and I, it was a good show. I really enjoyed it, but I just remember being like 100 meters or something away from the stage at like a weird angle to the side and you couldn't really see them, but you could just see a projection of them on the stage. It was still worth it, but I think I prefer the intimacy of a smaller space. What made this uh, particular show stand out compared to other small intimate shows that you've been to? I think um, this one I feel like quite nostalgic about because even though it was in January, it feels like forever ago with the whole COVID thing. And I guess another part of me is like a little bit slightly emotional because it's like, oh, when will I get to do this again? And I don't like... I think Australia is doing relatively well, so it may not be super long, but yeah, I don't know when I'll be able to go to the pub, a pub and listen to a band. I, oh. feel, I feel like over there in Australia, you've had things a lot worse than uh, here in Western Europe because, you know, you just got out of a bunch of trouble with all of the bushfires and now you still can't leave the house because because of the COVID thing. The bushfires were more rural areas. It wasn't really city-based but yeah uh i think right now though we're managing it quite well and like restrictions are slowly starting to ease i think we only had about seven thousand cases all up and there's only about 600 650 active cases at the moment so it's not too bad but i think pubs and stuff will be the last thing to open especially i, I don't think they expect drunk people to be able to socially distance themselves distance themselves which is fair enough I don't think they would. So um, crowded, cramped little music venues and things. Yeah, going to miss them for a while. How much of a um, music scene is there in, in Sydney as a whole? Because I'm aware of some of the venues like Roundhouse or the Vanguard, but um, like when it comes to music from Australia, there are hardly any artists that I can think of that are actually from Sydney. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure about how many Sydney-based artists there are. Like, I haven't actually, like, I I, I, I know I really love Australian music, particularly, like, Australian women I have a soft spot for. But, yeah, I couldn't tell you where Alex Leahy was from or Ruby Fields or, like, Julia Jacqueline or, yeah, Ali Barter. I don't know what city. It's never occurred to me to Google. Yeah, no, I, I Googled a little bit of it. Um, Ali Barter, I didn't. But, uh, for example... Julia Jacklin is from Sydney. Um, oh, yeah. Alex Leahy, Melbourne. And then beyond what artists were playing this episode, like Courtney Burnett's from Melbourne. Um, Stella Donnelly, oh, yeah. born in Wales, um, moved to Perth. But yeah, no, it's um, when I was scrolling through, like I, I just Googled artists from Sydney and yeah. only two bands came up that I was familiar with being acdc and in excess oh okay yeah yeah not the ones you'd probably normally listen to if your taste is similar to mine um i like yeah i think oh sorry um (laughs) that's all right yeah i think melbourne is considered to be more of the creative hub so you also have a lot of people who if you are wanting to do it be in creative industries will move from sydney to melbourne for that whole purpose they're a bit more relaxed in terms of like nightlife as well. So I can see it being advantageous if you are a musician. That could be it. But uh, yeah, I'm honestly not sure. How about your your own stage experiences? Because you mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, you do slash used to do comedy. Um, I'm going to go and guess that also the comedy stages are 
until the lockdown's yeah. over. Yeah, I think comedy will be one of the last things to come back, which is a shame because I really love doing stand-up. I think um, I really enjoy comedy writing and I enjoy writing in general and I really love performing and also drinking. So it was everything that I enjoyed doing uh, wrapped together. How did you get into comedy? Yeah, I think I like fell into it kind of. A friend of mine uh, mentioned that she was going to give it a go and I was sort of in this like phase where I kind of wanted to be more creative like I hadn't had any creative hobbies that I was doing really um so I gave it a go uh with her and I just really loved it and I had the best first time experience I could have asked for so um yeah kept doing it afterwards I think it was one of those experiences where I don't know if you have friends like this but one of my friends describes himself as a writer like it's like the first adjective he'll describe himself as like like it's like a central part of his identity and I think for a while I was really like jealous because I didn't feel like I had anything like that and this is probably the closest I've come to something that I'm like obsessive about that I really love doing. And then with the with the stages like uh, with with doing stand-up you actually made a living off of that at some point right? Oh no 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 one makes a living off of it no um it's kind of, it's kind of like yeah, paid gig stuff. Yes yeah of course yeah I think I was getting to the stage where I was getting pay gigs relatively regularly. There is a bit of a thing where like, uh, like I think it's pretty much, I'm not going to say impossible, but unless you're someone who's on TV, it's almost impossible in, in Australia to be like owning enough to live off doing comedy just in and of itself. But um, it was definitely becoming a component of my income and that was really nice. But mostly you do it for the love. Does music play a part in all that? Like, um, I mean, the only frame of reference I've got here is Bo Burnham, who also includes like music in his comedy acts. Like, is that something you do as well? Not really. Uh, it probably will be whenever I write an hour show. I'm sure there'll be like some sort of, uh, maybe not music, but sound component to it. Um, I'm not as musical as I would like to be. I feel like I'm very uncoordinated and uh, I have no sense of rhythm naturally. I love music. I couldn't do it. For my, like I, I like I think like it was the only subject in high school that I failed at. So um, I'm probably not going to be doing musical comedy anytime soon. But um, I have a few friends who do it, and I really like admire them for it because it seems like an extra skill to be able to be funny, but also do so with it like uh, yeah that level of not even not only hand eye coordination, but just also like writing within the constraints of this has to rhyme or this has to fit this beat, rhythm, whatever. Right. You also feel like writing comedy is harder than writing anything else because, you know, when you're writing a song, for example, put thoughts and emotions or like some fictional story on a paper, but with comedy, it stands or falls by um, whether or not the audience will think it's funny as well like more than with any other art form it really has to resonate with your audience and i think that's a very impressive skill to have but it's hard to learn uh i think at some point you clue onto the fact that different audiences like different things so this is going to sound bad and it probably is a little bit but like if i i'm looking at a crowd and it's predominantly men that i'm more likely to do sex related material because that way they won't immediately dismiss me uh, like I think women generally the moment you get on stage you need to grab their attention more like you need to try harder than a man I think if there's a predominantly male audience and vice versa I can like if it's a predominantly female audience I can feel more comfortable doing like a joke about periods or menstrual cups or whatever it is without worrying that some someone's gonna groan at me or you know tell me I'm being gross or whatever um, but yeah I think you just write and you, I feel like I always write in my own voice, but it's just deciding what sort of jokes I'm going to do that day will depend upon what I feel like from watching the other acts, what the crowd is responding to, what the crowd seems to be like. It must also be like a very clear uh, and similar difference between regular bars and queer spaces. Yeah, queer spaces are so good. Like queer comedy spaces are the best spaces and I love them. I love them so much. I think... Like, another thing that I've noticed is that, like, if I'm showing skin, like, if I'm showing a, like, if I'm wearing something, like, like kind of slightly sexy, then normal comedy spaces 
will assume that if you're hot, you're not funny and then just not pay that much attention to you. It's really strange. I don't know why men are like this. I'm saying men. It probably is mostly men, but like, um, and then queer spaces, it's kind of like you can, you could go like, I've seen women like, or whatever people go on stage just wearing like a bra and panties and do a set and then like get a standing ovation. And I'm like, I love you guys. Cause you just listen and are nice. And they're so warm. They're the warmest spaces. Like you're, people are actually paying attention to what you're listening instead of sexually objectifying whoever is on stage. Yeah. Like it's just like, it's, yeah, there's less judgment that people are more, people are just warm and supportive and really happy to see queer content. So, um, highlights the importance of, uh, queer representation, like not just in any form of media, but also comedy in particular. Yeah, definitely. I think like, all of the queer events that I generally go to are packed out and I think it's because people are hungry for it. Yeah, that makes sense. And also um, the sense of community as well, right? Queers, yeah, supporting queers, whether you're an artist or not. And it's also, it sounds like something that circles back around. Like if you are being supported by a whole bunch of queer artists, you'll also end up with the means to support other queer artists. Yeah, that makes sense. There's something beautiful about that. Cyclical. Exactly. Let's uh, dive into our last track of the day, Pressure to Party by Julia Jacqueline. Last track of the day, Pressure to Party, Julia Jackson, uh, Julia Jacqueline, most recent Discovery, also a song released 2019. We've got a whole bunch of recent tracks. Like I think the average age of songs is the lowest in this episode. There is still some nostalgic going on, but with tracks that are generally very young, and I'm, I'm kind of enjoying that because you know I like highlighting fresh new music. But yeah, why why did you choose this one? Julia Jacqueline as well. I've- only sort of discovered the past few months and yeah i've just really enjoyed her music i feel like it's quite diverse in terms of mood so like pressure to party is like a really fun upbeat one which i like is one of the ones i will like sing along to dance along to if i'm by myself um but then yeah you have the wrong mellow stuff as well which also i like i find really resonates with me lyrically yeah i i, I don't know i just really like her i think one of my biggest regrets for 2020 was that I think she had a concert at the Enmore Theatre in March and I almost went, but I just didn't buy tickets. I think I had something else on that night and I was like, oh, it's all right. I'll skip this one. And I regret that so much. But yeah, all of your, all of the tracks that you've picked for this episode are sung by women. Was that a deliberate choice? Yeah, partially. Like I considered throwing some men in there, but I was like, no, let's like, I feel like, 90% 90% of my recent Spotify things that I listen to or whatever are predominantly women. So I, I could have chucked in Arctic Monkeys, but I think this is more true to what I listen to day to day. Right, yeah. It's not because of some... Uh, it's it's not meant as a statement to uh, or uh, to only pick women. It's just because it's representative of what, of what your music taste actually is. Yeah, yeah. Like, I still um, definitely listen to men, but I think, like vocally for some reason i just prefer listening to women um yeah like i'm trying to i'm just having a scroll now to see what men have listened to recently or bands i think there's like crooked colors tame impala oh, all right 
yeah, I've been really late getting into Tame Impala, but I've recently started getting into Tame Impala behind everyone and everything. Um, <laughs> Flume, who also has women uh, doing a lot of the vocals, but is a man. Uh, yeah, the, the, the producer himself is a guy, but all of the top line mostly sang by women. Yeah, yeah, I think I just aesthetically, is there aesthetically the right word for sound vocally? I don't know. I prefer women for whatever reason. Moving towards the end of the show, kind of wrapping it up, how does music reflect your queerness? I listen to a fair bit of fa uh, queer artists, so I guess it reflects in that way of like um, wanting to have your experiences reflected in media. So often songs I'll have on repeat are like really queer songs. Um, Pussy's God is one of them that I've had on repeat for a little bit recently, uh, which is obviously like quite overtly queer um, and then there's other songs that are like less overt like there'll be artists like yeah Alex Leahy but often it's there's just something really nice as well about like songs occasionally that are just very gay and very in your face about how gay they are. Do you actively go uh, looking for other queer artists or do you just stumble upon them and they stick around? Uh, I think more I stumble upon them and they stick around. Right. I think that's about it. Signing off for now. This has been Queer Sounds. Um, once again, um, if you want to support this show, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash queersounds. You can find me on Twitter at queersoundspod. Um, we're actually also on Tumblr, uh, queersoundspod.tumblr.com. Um, just go visit on uh, our site, queersounds.com. You can obviously listen do this podcast through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever, uh, whatever your podcast player of preference is. Um, and yeah, with that, boy, um, I want to thank you, Ganit, for making time to be on the show. And I want to thank you, dear listener, for allowing us back into your ears. And we'll see you next episode.